unpredictable or is he unpredictable? How would you answer that question? Maybe in the middle of our day-to-day lives, God seems very unpredictable. We know the promise that he's working all things for good for those who love him, but often it's hard to figure out how he's doing that and what he's going to do next. But if we step back from the present moment and if we look together at the big picture, we realize actually God acts very predictably. God can be depended on to bring salvation to his people and judgment on the enemies of his people. Think back for a minute to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. Exodus opens with Abraham's descendants living in Egypt, not their own country. We're told they were prospering in Egypt. And Pharaoh, as he watched them, began to get nervous. He decided eventually to make them into slaves. And we read that the Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor. And Pharaoh ordered that every Hebrew boy was to be drowned in the Nile. Then in the midst of that, after we've been told those things, we read this. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The rest of the book of Exodus tells us how God's concern turned into action. He sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message. The Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And you probably know the story. Pharaoh responded by saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Get lost, Moses. And since you've been so cheeky, Moses, I'm going to make life even harder for these Israelites. Then in response to Pharaoh's response, God sent a series of what we call plagues. They're really signs of God's sovereign power. Ten of them. And through all of them, Pharaoh refused to repent. Until finally, God brought Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea on dry ground. When Pharaoh and his army tried to follow the Israelites... They were drowned. Exodus tells us not one of them survived. But the Israelites stood on the far side of the Red Sea, watching God's judgment fall on the Egyptians. And we're told they sang, praising God for his salvation and for bringing judgment on their enemies. That song began, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The horse and driver is a reference to the Egyptians and their chariots. You can read the rest of the song in Exodus chapter 15. Its main theme 
is that salvation was only possible because God sent judgment on the enemy who was trying to destroy Israel. What does all that have to do with Revelation? Well, it turns out that first exodus was not a one-off. It was God setting out his stall for the rest of history. All through the Old Testament, we find God's people pointing back to the exodus to remind themselves this is what God does. He brings salvation to his people and judgment on the enemies of his people. And in the last book of the Bible, we are promised that one day, God will bring about a final exodus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. In the church Bible, it's page 1244. And in the large print, 1929. I'll read all of chapters 15 and 16. John says in chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes round their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go. Pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, 
And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs. and They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 40 kilograms, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. This is God's word. Chapter 15 begins with John saying this, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. In earlier visions, as we've worked through this book, John has been showing God's wrath throughout history. But it seems that here, he's going to be showing God's wrath at the end of history. Last week we saw the end of history being pictured as a harvest. Here it's pictured as a final exodus. We're being given different ways of thinking about the same event. Different pictures of the same thing. And here at the start we're showing how the final exodus ends up for God's people. In other words, we begin with the happy ending of the exodus. Before John has shown the exodus itself, he's taken to the other side of the sea in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 15. 
Chapter 15, verse 2 says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass, glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps, given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God's people are not facing a terrifying sea here. They have come safely through the sea. And they're looking back, celebrating God's victory. Their enemy, the beast, has been swallowed up. Just like Pharaoh and his armies were swallowed up in the Red Sea. And verse 3 says these people are singing the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. In other words, these people are saved by the blood of the Lamb. In that sense, the song they're singing is the new song we've heard before in this book. But this new song also has echoes of a very old song. The song from the first Exodus. The theme of that old song is here in the new song. God is praised not only for saving his people, but also for bringing judgment on the enemies of his people. The end of verse 4 says, your righteous acts have been revealed. Not just salvation, but judgment too. Remember how the song started back in Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Here, it's the beast. And those who have his mark of ownership, who have been hurled into the sea of God's wrath. We need to let this sink in. Because I imagine this is something we don't think about very much. And it's going to come up again and again in these final chapters of Revelation. We're probably all comfortable with the fact that God will be praised for bringing salvation. But the Bible insists he will also be praised for bringing judgment. God's justice and God's truth and God's righteousness Those characteristics are shown not only in his acts of redemption, but also in his acts of wrath. Maybe we struggle to accept that. But if we do, surely it's because we have only a faint sense of God's majesty and his worthiness. And we still have a fair amount of sympathy for God's enemies. But Revelation tells us that one day when we see him face to face, 
we will realize he is to be praised not only for his saving grace, but also for crushing those who oppose his majesty and try to steal it for themselves. One day we'll see and we'll understand God would be unrighteous if he surrendered his position to those who are not God, to Satan and Satan's representatives and all those who side with them. And as far as the Bible is concerned, you don't have to call yourself a devil worshiper to side with Satan. According to the Bible, you side with Satan by trusting in any of the God substitutes that Satan sets up in this world. Putting your hopes in one of the false saviors Satan presents in this world. If you're trusting in your own good performance in life, you've bought Satan's lie that you can be your own savior. And that puts you in opposition to God and the savior he has provided. So far, we've seen God's people celebrating at the end of the seven last plagues. But now the vision rewinds to actually show us the seven last plagues. And they're pictured here as the seven bowls of wrath. The reason they're described as bowls being poured out is to show that all of this is coming from God. And chapter 16 verse 1 makes that very clear. John hears a command from the temple in heaven. Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood, like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. These are not only echoing the plagues on Egypt. We've also seen similar things earlier in the book of Revelation. When we saw God's wrath coming in limited ways all through history. So for example in the natural disasters that were described in chapter 8. We were told a third of the living creatures in the sea died. It was partial judgment. But here we are seeing the last plagues. And verse 3 says, every living thing in the sea died. Then, if we're to understand what comes next, we have to remind ourselves of something we heard back in chapter 6. There John was shown a vision of heaven. Not heaven in the future, but heaven now. As history is unfolding on earth. And as John looked, he told us, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? In other words, 
those souls in heaven today are conscious of a lack of justice. Yes, they know God does pour out a certain amount of wrath during history. But it's partial. There are many, many enemies of God and his people who sail through life unpunished. Plenty of them seem to prosper in every way. And those in heaven say, how long, sovereign Lord, until you bring judgment and avenge our blood? We know you're holy, true, and just. So we know you will bring justice. We know you won't ignore evil. We know that you won't pretend it's been dealt with fully when it hasn't been. We know you're too holy to settle for partial justice. You will bring full justice. Throughout history, that's the cry of God's people in heaven. As they see much of the evil in this world going unpunished. And now... In our passage, as we see the end of history, we see the answer to those cries in heaven. Verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. In verse 5, the NIV says, You are just in these judgments. A more accurate translation is, You are just because you brought these judgments. The point being made is not that the judgments are fair. They are fair, but that is not the main point. The point is, God is fair because he brought these judgments. He would not be fair or holy or true if his enemies forever got away with their evil. Particularly the evil of persecuting his people. The point is, God's wrath proves his justice. Earlier, the beginning of our passage, we saw that God will be glorified for bringing both salvation and judgment. Here the message is, God will be glorified for avenging the suffering of his people. And again, we might be a little uncomfortable with this. Are we supposed to think like this? About God avenging things? About people getting what they deserve? We do need to take into account when and where these things are being said. The call for vengeance back in chapter 6, that call came from heaven. And here, the praise for God's vengeance comes also from heaven. 
The New Testament tells us while we are on earth, we are to do good to those who hate us. We are to share the good news with all people. We are to pray they come to repentance. We are told not to take revenge. But notice why in Romans chapter 13. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. In other words, the Bible passages telling us not to take revenge are not saying there will be no revenge. They're saying, leave it to God. It's not for us to do, it is for God to do. In his justice, he will avenge the blood of those Christians who've been beheaded recently in front of their families. He will avenge the women who've been raped, the children who've been abused. We don't live in a universe where wrongs get eternally swept under the carpet. Now we must never forget God has provided a way for sinners to be forgiven. Even those we might consider to be the worst of sinners. The blood of Christ can cleanse any sinner if that sinner runs to him for mercy. But when God's enemies won't bow to receive that mercy, God will take vengeance on them for their evil. Christianity does not present us with a hippie God who says peace and love to everybody and let's just forget all that suffering and all that pain. No, the God of the Bible is true and just. On the cross, Jesus took what we deserved. He paid the price of justice for us. If we will run to him and say, my Lord and my God, we'll be saved from what we deserve. Otherwise, one day we will get what we deserve. Justice will be done. And God will be praised for it. So when you or I are on the receiving end of some evil, we are not to take on a vengeful attitude. But we can be sure God cares about the wrong done to me. He is not overlooking it. He will put it right. It's important to know that. And it's important to remember, if God puts it right by saving the wrongdoer, because they have cried out for mercy and their sin has been punished in Christ. If God puts things right that way, then we have to accept that form of his justice too. We can't keep holding out for God's wrath still to fall on that person. If they've come to Christ, he's already taken their share of wrath. And we can't hold out for more vengeance. 
these various plagues that we see in chapter 16. They're symbolic of different forms of suffering and torment. But instead of trying to figure out the precise details of each one, we're to realize they are modeled on the Exodus plagues. We could see that if we went back and compared. The justice God brought on Pharaoh and his army was foreshadowing the justice he'll bring on all his enemies at the end of time. Notice how in verse 12, the events of the first exodus are adapted. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. In the first exodus, the Red Sea dried up and the Egyptians charged into the dry channel thinking they could get to God's people and finish them. Here, in this vision, it's the Euphrates that dries up. The change of river is connected to the fact that in Revelation, God's enemies are referred to as Babylon. That ancient enemy came to symbolize every enemy. So in this symbolic vision, the river becomes the Euphrates because that's the river an army from Babylon would have to cross. But we miss the point here if we expect this final rebellion to involve one army crossing one river. Verse 14 says, the kings of the whole world gather for battle. And verse 16 says, they gather at a place called Armageddon. We'll hear much more detail about this battle later in the book. It's not the main focus here. And we're given almost no detail at this point. But the name Armageddon gives us a big clue. That we're not to think of this as one specific battlefield. Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo. But there is no mountain of Megiddo. There is a plain of Megiddo, and it was famous in Israel's history. It was famous for a battle where the kings from the east gathered together to fight Israel. And that ancient battle at Megiddo was being used as an illustration. It's telling us to expect a final attack on God's people. But by talking about the mountain of Megiddo, Revelation is warning us not to overinterpret the picture here. A map isn't going to help us. We won't find Armageddon on a map. This picture is telling us to expect a final worldwide squeeze on the church. Not a hand-to-hand battle on a relatively small space in Israel. 
And of course, it's the old enemies who are behind this last battle. Verse 13 mentions the unholy trinity that we've met before. Back in chapters 12 and 13. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. He was previously referred to as the beast from the earth. And just as the plague of frogs wrecked havoc in ancient Israel, so the work of the unholy trinity is pictured like frogs let loose, gathering those who've given their allegiance to the beast. God's people are told to watch out for this final squeeze. Verse 15 says we need to be awake and alert. Elsewhere, the New Testament tells us how we do that. Not by panicking about the news, but by clothing ourselves with Christ. We are to pursue Christ-likeness. That's what it means to clothe ourselves with Christ. And we are to be trusting in Christ, not in anything else. That's the picture we have here too. We are to stay awake as Christians. And then we won't be taken by surprise when that final attack comes. Whatever form it might take. And we won't be ashamed when we meet our conquering king, Jesus. And he will conquer. In fact, this big battle will turn out to be a bit of a non-event. After the announcement in verse 16 that the kings of the earth gather for battle, verse 17 tells us the seventh angel poured out the wrath, the seventh and final bowl of wrath, and a voice from heaven says, it is done. No contest. No prolonged struggle. Just destruction for God's enemies. As I said, this last battle will be covered in more detail later in the book. More of our questions about it will be answered then. But as the final wrath of God is mentioned here, there is just one thing in particular that's being underlined for us. We hear it three times as these final bowls of wrath are being described. First of all, back in verse 9, we're told this about God's enemies. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Then in verse 10, people cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Then as the final plague of hail is falling amidst the disintegration of the earth, which is a familiar picture to us by now, it's always described in Revelation as a severe earthquake. As that collapse of the earth is described for us, we read this in verse 21. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Revelation 15 and 16 have assured us God is just. And here is more proof of that. 
here's proof that hell will not be a place where men and women weep in repentance. It will not be a place where they cry for mercy only to have God say, sorry, too late, you missed your chance. No, according to Revelation, those who do not repent in this life will never repent. The word translated curse here is literally blaspheme. We saw earlier in the book, blaspheming God doesn't only involve outright cursing of it. Blasphemy is anything that demeans or undermines or misrepresents God. And here the message is, those who persist in those things in this life will persist in them for all eternity. Hell will never raise a question mark over God's justice. Hell will forever confirm God's justice. Because God's enemies will be forever unrepentant. The book of Deuteronomy tells us God's works are perfect. And all his ways are just. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. Revelation 15 and 16 are here to assure us when God brings punishment, he does no wrong. He is equally just and faithful in his wrath as he is in his mercy. And for all eternity, he will be glorified for all his righteous acts, both his salvation and his judgment. Let's pray. Father, we remember that you are the Lord God Almighty. There are so many things we don't understand about your ways in this world and in eternity. We look at your word and we realize you are not tame. And we are not always at ease around you. When we see you in your word, we tremble sometimes at your holiness and what that means for your enemies. But we do want to worship you as you are, for who you are. We don't want to settle for some idea of God that we have dreamt up for ourselves. And so we bow before you and we acknowledge all your ways are just. You do no wrong. And we are amazed that in your just wrath you have remembered mercy. We are amazed that you have provided a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
We are amazed to hear your promise that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And today you are still saying, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. So we take you at your word. We take you at your promise. We know there's still opportunity to join this final exodus we've been hearing about. Today, we can join those who will sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. If we'll trust not in ourselves, but in your son, Jesus. And those of us who have found your mercy in Jesus, we ask for your compassion and your courage to point others to him. Amen. Let's praise God with the words that say, I will sing of the Lamb and then behold our God.